I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. Babe? <laughs> yes. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. They say our love won't pay the rent. For it's earned, our money's all been spent. I guess that's so we don't have a plot. But at least I'm sure of all the things we got. Babe. I got you. As opposed to like rise and shine campers. <laughs> it has no, the best obvious like radio intro of all time instead you did babe i've got you babe that's the song they play yeah i know we could have played the song we're gonna play like, the song also we'll do the song but then you could have said rise and shine campers then Fine, you, you want to do it again no this is all part of the episode this is after they've heard the song <laughs> they're going right into us arguing uh, but that's fine, because uh, we're starting out the episode as assholes, and mm-hmm. by the yeah, end, we, 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 we are going to be lovely people. <laughs> we'll go on our own little Groundhog Day arc. Um, and you're certainly a Phil Connors right now. <laughs> oh yeah, well you're a Ned Needlenose. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Connors? <laughs> Ned? <laughs> that's where we're at in the story anyways uh yeah where we love to watch we're a movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies uh over the course of that month around that theme and if we remember we compare and contrast and this is a new month we're in february and uh, we decided to do something uh somewhat february related which is a holiday it's not president's day it's not valentine's day but it's groundhog day Again, we normally try to think of somewhat of a clever name for each month, and <laughs> I guess uh, the, the jury's still out on whether we succeed, but this time we are just calling it Groundhog Day Month, because even though Groundhog Day is relatively recent when it comes to movies, it is a movie that didn't just that wasn't just a fantastic movie and a big box office hit, but also spawned its own kind of uh, I, 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 I hesitate to call it a a mini genre but if anything it like spawned a new storytelling technique that other people just copy wholesale um and they're like oh that's a way you can tell a story okay i'm gonna tell my story through the groundhog day device and also like and also like it's not the first movie to use that structure uh the a, a bunch of people actually uh sued the screenwriter of this because they claimed that he ripped off their story um and he claimed that he based it on a book from 1893 or so it was a what's it called uh 1892 Christmas Every Day by William Dean Howellus um so he he was like, uh, no, I didn't steal from you guys. I stole from public Copyright domain. free, public <laughs> domain. But it really, even though it was, uh, yeah, something that clearly had some basis in another idea from who knows how long ago, it is kind of the touch point of the 20th century that did Absolutely. It. Uh, there really isn't, I mean, there's the story structure itself and kind of the character's arc uh, doesn't, I mean, it follows any movie where the kind of jerk becomes a becomes a nicer guy but it really just established this technique and this device that has been used by many many other people and usually to actually very 
uh, successful results. This this way to tell a story, it almost like it does ninety percent of the work for you. So the type of television shows and movies that I feel like have either wholly or partially grafted onto this storytelling device have been very successful because, and we'll talk about it at the onset here, it's an extremely compelling way to tell a story. So we're going to talk about a few of them this month. We're going to, we're starting with Groundhog Day. Uh, then we're going to do uh, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, also known as Live, Die, Repeat, uh, based on the manga uh, All You Need Is Kill, about uh, which is kind of the action sci-fi uh, person needs to keep living the same day over and over until he until he is able to beat the aliens. Then we'll be doing Triangle, which is actually the one that's more inspired by this, that doesn't just take basically the whole three-act structure wholesale, um, but very good. And then Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, which uh, is so far removed from it, from a, like, I guess just chronologically, that they feel comfortable going referencing Groundhog Day and saying that this is the exact thing that happened in Groundhog Day. Though, uh, the, the character arc is very similar in the first movie. It's, I mean, it's not just that they, they, they that these movies steal, like, Edge of Tomorrow, Happy Death Day, and I don't mean steal in a, in a uh, judgmental way, but it's not that they steal the idea of someone um, living the same day over and over. Those uh, those are two examples of the movies that are actually, like, stealing the whole act structure. Like, so in the first act, he, f- he starts – the person starts repeating the day, and then you see the same stuff over and over. And then the second act, it's, like, where you start branching out from that. And now they're changing things enough that we're creating new scenarios that are going to repeat over and over. And then the third act is bringing in all those things together so that you're seeing stuff from the first – like, they they copy all of those – parts and again very successful results and it's not just the movies that we're covering we talked a lot about having an episode about television shows that have done this too because there uh the x-files has one of the more famous ones but there is a lot of television shows that are like you know it's an easy thing or not an easy thing but we should if you're a sci-fi or a horror show or even comedy shows like let's do a groundhog day episode. and and again that is how people refer to. So that's why we're calling the month Groundhog Day month because the it's it's a it's a movie itself, but it's also just become a term for this specific storytelling technique. Yeah, it's a it's a good I think it's a good place to start as any because the story has become iconographic in a way that uh, has allowed it to live on in many forms. Like for a lot of people, it's just a classic Bill Murray comedy, and for some people, it's this like genuinely touching story about a man's you know a man going going through a it's a genuinely touching story about a man uh, becoming the man he's supposed to be and for some people it's like a actually sort of a spiritual uh dramatic piece about what it's like to actually be alive and it's it's um it's all sort of an allegory for how our life runs in cycles and how many of our days can feel like these repetitive actions and you can't get anything right and then the clock just resets again and you have to do it all over again um so we'll get into all of that but yeah this is this is a movie that a lot of people have a lot of reactions to and a lot of um uses for uh, so let's – I do want to go through some of the stuff we didn't talk about just because uh, I think it's worth – so I mentioned the X-Files episode. There's also uh, episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Discovery, Charmed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Stargate SG-1, Farscape, 
Xena, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Supernatural, Outer Limits, Doctor Who, Lost, uh, Fringe, Andromeda, The Dead Zone, uh, Futurama, <laughs> Star Trek Enterprise, uh, all have it. And then there's a couple big movies that we we didn't get to, too. Like, I know we were talking about doing Source Code at one point. Uh, in 1408, the Stephen King uh, movie and story is the same thing. And there, there's a couple more in there. Like, Time Crimes is a little closer to Triangle in its structure, but it's still kind of building in the living the same thing. And Except it's the difference there is that uh, he's able to interact with things in the environment as they live through the same moment. Triangle's the same way. Uh, but there's a lot to choose from because, again, this is just a amazing concept that can be used anywhere. That's what I want to start talking about. Peter, I, I don't know if we've talked about this. So Groundhog Day is one of my ten favorite movies of all time. I love this movie. I rewatch it constantly. Uh, and I find that a lot of those episodes of those TV shows I mentioned, like Star Trek The Next Generation Cause and Effect, or X-Files Monday, or some of these other movies that we're going to be talking about this month, are also movies I can watch again and again and again. And I'm not trying to be ironic, because obviously... <laughs> The plot, uh, the the plot of these movies is that things are happening over and over. But I do find it interesting how compelling and rewatchable it is. And my theory is, besides that, a lot of them are like very uh, funny and interesting episodes. But I really like that instead of having to commit to watching uh, a two hour movie or an hour long movie, we're basically getting little mini movies. In, like, five-minute chunks. And as someone who likes short movies, Peter, I do feel like there's something interesting about, like, having arcs that, like, start and end in short periods of time. And, like, and then starting over again to continue to build and grow and then twist and then articulate on it and then kind of upend it, what you're expecting. And I just, this idea of, in some ways, being this omnipotent being who just gets to try a bunch of different things over the course of the day is just an amazingly compelling and watchable concept. It's a it's a sort of stru- story structure that sounds really frustrating when you hear about it. You're like, oh, so we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again until it happens right. But yeah, it actually creates this uh, it creates this wonderful sort of uh, a spirituality to it where you're like you're sort of at peace with the with the movie as soon as you realize what it's doing um and you're like okay so this is a zone we can play in right it's not like everything everything doesn't feel super fragile for once everything doesn't feel like it's a moment that can be shattered um it feels like a moment can be shattered and then the teacup is just going to go right back together again um and what makes it interesting is that so we're going to be doing three movies this month that are uh, Groundhog Day Horror, um, the two Happy Death Day movies, and yeah. uh, Triangle. This movie, when you're watching it, it feels like a horror movie to me until two-thirds of the way through. Um, it feels like a horror movie to me. It just it happens to be funny. Like, the two the two feelings of terror and... and uh, in uh, you know, comedy are very tied together, as like a lot of people have remarked. A lot of people smarter yeah. than me have found a deeper way to to associate them. But for me, can um, they be on the podcast? <laughs> the fact that this movie is willing to make it real enough that I start to pity Phil Connors, and yeah, it, like that he's in this disc- this like 
he's in this vicious limbo that no matter what he does, uh, him just trying to live through this day and any variation is never good enough. And he's just going to have it reset is, is a true existential horror. It is. And like, you especially feel that when he trying to kill himself as much as possible, that it's also that idea that not only are you stuck in this eternity, but there's no way out of it. And like, you've already in some ways explored the boundaries of your reality. Like by the time he gets to that point, like, He's done all the fun things he can think of. He's watched the same episode of Jeopardy a hundred thousand times. Who knows? Um, Like, he's just done all the stuff. And I even think about that from, like, I'm sure you've done the Peter, like, what would it be like if I got trapped in a Groundhog Day situation? And, like, would I I want that to happen? Um, He even says at one point he had this perfect day where he was, like, I think he was on, like, a beach and he was just, like... Drinking all day and then had sex with a beautiful person. And then he's like, why couldn't it have been that day over and over and over again? (laughs) Um, But I think one thing that's interesting is that even that day, he would have found the boundaries of, have done everything within the the time of the day. And I I think about, I'm sure you do, Peter, as like a consumer of media, that it was like, oh my God, I'll finally watch all these fucking movies I own that I haven't got around (laughs) to. But then like you start thinking longer and longer and you're like, well, I couldn't order anything from Amazon. Even with two-day shipping, it would never get here. So, like, at some point, even, like, just thinking about it with, like, catching up on things I'm interested in, you know, I would, like, unless it's in a store here or, like, eventually you run out of stuff. How far can you drive? This movie smartly, like, keeps them in one spot so you can't be like, well, it's a six-hour drive to the beach. I'm going to go do that today and maybe I'll just start doing that. The snowstorm helps confine him to the town. Which is yeah. uh, helpful for the for him to really almost be like in a Truman Show s snow globe. Like there yeah, are lim- boundaries. It's a it, it, that's what's lovely about this movie. So one of the choices they made early on in production was they actually shot a scene where Phil pissed off someone that he works with who happens to be some sort of uh, offensive racial stereotype. I forget if she's Romani or if she's oh no she's from Voodoo culture. So he pisses off somebody who practices voodoo and she casts him into the spiritual limbo until he fixes, fixes his, uh, till he cleans up his act, he fixes himself. And they wisely cut that, which I think I just was talking about how this movie is kind of touches people in different ways. Um, this is a movie that is, uh, I hate, I, I don't think it's actually true, but because uh, people on the internet are insufferable, but it's kind of um, fan theory proof. Because any sort of interpretation of what's going on can um, can probably be rounded out. And it's not about, like, what got him into the cycle. It's not about this, uh, some silly magical conceit. That would have made it a cheap, a, a cheap like, mid-80s movie, like A Weekend at Bernie's. Like, oh, well, we yeah. need something, something really contrived so he can get in this weird situation for comedy's sake. Instead, they just completely cut that. Um, from the movie and then just made it a sort of vague, uh, vague magical thing that you have to accept as his, as Phil Connors reality. Yeah. Anyone directing this, like what was going on fails. And I, I agree with you on the fan theory proof thing, because like one thing that this movie does, and we'll obviously get into it more detail. Like if you're like, well, he had to become a good person. Well, he becomes a good person at the end of the second act. And then the third act is based on, you know, him deciding he's going to, like, learn to play piano and a bunch of other stuff. 
uh, clearly years upon years, if not decades, of him continuing to live in this and instead spending the time, like, bettering himself. So it's like, well, he was probably a good person, I don't know, 20 years before he got out on the last day. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's what's so great about it. And also, he's not like he is a Bill Murray-esque kind of smarmy asshole who is selfish and a little self-absorbed. But, like, he's he's one of those people who, and you see this at the beginning of the movie, like, he's contemptuous of the people around him. But he still understands that, like, he lives in a society and he can't just be like, fuck you, you idiot. He's like, he just is, like, under his breath seething at everyone. Which, you're right, he's an asshole. That is what he is. But he's not, like, this, like, history's greatest monster, right? Like, he's not, like... Someone who has to learn the lessons to, like, uh, you know, not hit their kids or something, like, horrendous. Like, he's just kind of a little bit of a jerk and a little bit self-absorbed. And so the idea that the – so putting a reason why this would happen to him or is is always going to be convoluted or take away. Like, you know, if if this happened to everyone until they became a good person, I imagine Hitler was stuck in one of these for quite some time, and it didn't seem to take. Uh, so, <laughs> like, and also I think that works for the movie as a whole. Like, if you had someone that was truly, like, toxic in some capacity, like, should be in jail, the redemption of him is... A, not going to work because the characters are like, well, you still, like, you robbed that store the other day with a gun. Like, still not great. Like, I'm glad you've changed. But, like, so they have to, you, he has to have some space for redemption from the characters and the audience uh, point of view and also has to somehow become a a likable character. And you mentioned um, that the, the voodoo priestess that they tried to add in a draft. That was not in the original script. So the original script, uh, Harold Ramis talks about this on some of the special features. The late, great Harold Ramis directed this movie. That the screenwriter for this movie made uh, when Harold Ramis wanted to buy it. He made him promise two things. One, that they would never explain uh, how it happened. Uh, And two, that they would start it in the middle like he had already been there $10,000 or $10,000, 10,000 years. And the audience has to slowly kind of figure out what's been going on. And at first it's just weirdness and how he's behaving. And then stuff starts to repeat. And then you get a sense of what's going on. And, and Harold Ramis on the commentary was like, well, uh, I, I'm sorry. I don't have the screenwriter's name in front of me, but it's like, at least I was able to say, he tells the story of them trying to add reasons and redemption. And he says, at least I was able to get one out of two for him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way this movie was made is like just as fascinating as, as the movie itself in a sense, because let's, let's talk about that because, <laughs> uh, before we, and then we'll get into the movie, but yeah, this movie, uh, an amazing movie. Critically acclaimed, box office hit, in another world should have won Oscars, destroyed the friendship of the two main people behind it. 
Yeah, so Bill Murray was going through a divorce at the time, a pretty bad divorce for him emotionally. Bill Murray is uh, famously a sad sack in real life. He he goes to dark places sometimes, and he's sometimes difficult on set. And uh, it sounds like on set here, he was variously difficult on set for the benefit of the movie, and uh, sometimes uh, <laughs> just because he's Bill Murray and he has a sense of entitlement that you either find charming or rage-inducing. Um, I'm more in the former camp, but that's a very boring white man thing to say. Uh, I think Bill Murray is a perfect example of someone who all of his interests play well as a movie character and in real life would be completely unsufferable. Uh, yes. Yeah. And this is, but this is such a great example of him being, you know, just completely disdainful, but disdainful without, like, he's a, he's a local TV anchor or a weatherman, right? Like, he can't be a dick. Like, he can't be an outward dick because it would alienate his audience and his co-workers and stuff like that. He doesn't have enough power to be an asshole in the way that he does outrightness in Scrooge. So instead, he has to be the kind of thing where he almost has plausible deniability that the thing he said may have not been dickish. Co-workers are a little different, but I think the, the pure example of that is... At the the first the first day is such a great example of like the plausible deniability of someone who hates people trying to just uh, pretend not pretend he doesn't but he's learned to thread the needle of his dickishness in a way that allows him a oh maybe he wasn't being a dick maybe that's just like maybe I interpret it wrong and the great example of that is uh, the 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 person who runs the bed and breakfast. When she when she's like making small talk about the weather and he answers it with the full forecast, you know, obviously as an audience member, you're like, oh, that's him. Just like, I'm going to make this person feel small. But he does it with such a smiley like, I think what's going to happen is this. Did you want to talk? Like you could say if someone called him on being a dick, he could be like, no, it's just what I do. Sorry, I slipped into that mode. Like he's he all of his meanness has a. You can see an out where if anyone confronted him on it, he could he could claim that out that he was didn't mean it that way. And what's interesting is that as those walls of like that he no longer has to maintain come down in this movie, he goes from that kind of what I'm just, you know, just talking to people to outright hostility in a couple days. And um, that's what I think Bill Murray has always been good at as someone who hates life hates the people and sees himself as above stuff and i mean like bill murray's characters but i do get the sense like when you hear interviews with him and like all these goofy stories with bill murray is him almost like play acting his way in this life where it's like these idiots get a kick out of this i'm gonna go show up to these parties because who cares like it's not his real life antics are not all that charming to me even though i think because of that he is so good at playing these movie characters because he is able to give this like complicated nuance that it's almost like, what is this person actually thinking? What does this person actually want? What would actually make this person happy? Like, does Pete Venkman enjoy being a Ghostbuster? I don't know. Sometimes he's smiling and joking about it and seems to be having fun, but... It almost like you you just can't get a uh, a a full grasp on on who he is, and I think that's just because that's kind of who Bill Murray is too. 
Yeah, yeah. And that elusiveness is why people are fascinated with him and weirdly seek out his approval um, as if he's this sort of demigod. And like, even as someone who really likes Bill Murray, I find some of the like worship of him kind of creepy. I don't know. I find a lot of celebrity worship creepy, like most reasonable people do. But this one in particular, I'm like, I don't think people quite understood the fact that he he told us who he was in almost every role in some capacity for his entire career. And, and uh, yeah. Harold Ramis got it. Harold Ramis understood it. I mean, when they were casting this movie, they considered a lot of people, including Tom Hanks for the Phil Connors role. And they were like, and they were rejected for reasons for, you know, I can't see this person being an asshole or I, I don't th- see this person and has having like, deep sad pathos um or there's going to be too much sympathy for him right away yes yes and he wanted and harold ramus understood who his old friend was um who was a a sad guy who if you were going to work with him you could get some gold but you had to pan it right you had to work for it he wasn't going to necessarily um make every day on set a predictable set of circumstances that you go through the weirdly enough it sounds like the, this behind the scenes on groundhog day was very very unpredictable and any day could be wild and harold and harold ramus uh it sounds like he weaved in and out of bill murray and his own personal needs and the screenwriters and the producers needs to uh craft this story uh and it's caused some friction between the two of them and it's probably why we never got like ghostbusters 3 as part is it's it's at least half the equation right is that like bill murray all of a sudden was like my old friends aren't supporting me i think i I, earlier i referenced bill murray was coming out of a bad divorce when he was working on this movie in pre-production uh and he wanted harold ramus to be there for him but harold ramus is like he's calling me at 3 a.m like i need him to go to therapy and get help. And instead he's yeah. like, he wants to talk through this movie script at 3am. And he, Harold Ramis is like, chill dude. He's like, yeah, I, yeah. I like have my, I have my systems. I, I don't need you to shake them up. And Bill Murray is like, I need my friend. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to view him as a, as a man struggling with depression, both in, in this movie on screen and both behind the scenes. You know, Bill Murray has always kind of, well, he's, he's one of those people like, um, not like Will Arnett, a little bit like, yeah, like Will Arnett. Will Arnett, when he was talking about, like, how he got cast in Arrested Development, is that he always tried to play serious characters. He thought he was a dramatic actor. And then when he would go do these auditions and line readings uh, for serious, like, bit parts, people would laugh. And he had to realize that, like, when he tried to be serious, people thought he was funny. And Will Arnett seems generally okay with that. Bill Murray, while he was always a like his his humor just comes from I think in general a pace a place of uh you know depression and pain. Bill Murray is a great example of someone who immediately post Saturday Night Live tried to pivot to more serious work. Right, like he he didn't want to be a comedic actor all the time, so he wanted to do stuff like. Well, where the Buffalo Roam, which was like 1980. Um, and then he uh, he only agreed to do Ghostbusters uh, to make The Razor's Edge. And Ghostbusters was a success. And now he's this big comedy star. And he's annoyed by it. He doesn't want to be this big comedy star. So he doesn't make another movie for five years. 
and then comes back in 1989 with like Ghostbusters 2 in order to make get quick change made, which he's co-director. So Ghostbusters 2 success, quick change a bomb. Like so Groundhog Day is where he, he the arguments with Ramus and Murray is that Ramus want, thought it was a like wanted it to just be a comedy. And Bill Murray wanted it to be a serious exploration of existential dread and depression. And has, as Ramis said later, they ended up like their clashes and their disagreements led it to be both a funny movie about uh, existential dread and your place in the universe. And uh, but Bill Murray was still very unhappy with the end results. And I didn't realize this till doing some research for this. They didn't talk for 21 years. They talked a month before Harold Ramis died because uh, Brian Doyle Murray called Bill and said, hey, he's like almost gone. So if you're ever going to talk to him again, now's the time. And apparently they had a private conversation that and then Bill Murray gave some nice tributes after Ramis had died. But I did not realize that they didn't speak after this movie for 21 years. Like, that speaks to, I mean, that speaks to the kind of pain that Bill Murray was going through at the time, that this registered yeah. for as, as such a deep betrayal when it was probably just Harold Ramis drawing boundaries. Yeah, and Ramis always spoke that he was hoping to someday get his friend Bill back, and Bill Murray refused to ever speak about Harold Ramis in interviews when people would bring it up, which is why there's not that much information on this feud, and I don't think people realized how deep it was, because it was a feud that Harold Ramis was trying to, like, minimize in the hopes that he would be get his friend back and like how long can this actually go on and it was something that bill murray was so uh you know from the movie's perspective and he just was unhappy with the way the movie turned out and all the stuff that you mentioned he just refused to ever give it a breath of air and acknowledge harold ramus by name or anything else so yeah and you kind of see then so he's really disappointed that this doesn't end up being a serious thing and in a very Bill Murray-esque, like, a character way, that's when he, and he, some people have wrote about this, that's when he kind of did the, okay, you wanted me to be a funny man, I'll be a funny man, and just kind of almost did a sadder version of Adam Sandler's, I, you know, I don't give a fuck, like, I'll be in Larger Than Life, and I'll be in The Man Who Knew Too Little, a movie I like, um... I like, but it's the it's one of the dumbest movies. It's dumb, but and that's when like he just basically when people would give him a script, he would be like, "I'll do your movie. I'm not. I'm gonna say whatever the fuck I want, and you can film around it." I'm, you know. So you end up in these movies that like have no artistic integrity. Garfield, and, yeah. That Bill Murray refuses to do a script. That then people are like, "Well, it's Bill Murray. We'll work around it." And it is kind of like his like, "Fuck you. You want a clown?" I'm going to give you a clown. And it's not till like Sofia Coppola and Jim Jeremiah start working with him that he starts to get a little bit. And, uh, and Wes Anderson, where he f- finally starts to get a little bit more of that, like, this is always the stuff I wanted to do. And like these new wave indie directors get it and gets a little bit more like pep in his step. And that's when you start having more fun quote unquote bill murray type stories yeah. and he's he's doing interviews again so it's just like it, why the fuck is he in darjeeling limited other than he likes wes anderson yeah like, all it is is a, is a strange little moment from like a european it, it's a strange little way to kick off a european inspired travel movie 
and Bill Murray is not really funny in his scene at all, and he's not edited really to be funny. It's just like a weird short movie, a short prologue to kick off the movie that doesn't feature any of the characters from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's and it's like that is that shows you that he you, you just like you're saying he hitched his wagon to a different generation of filmmakers, um, the Jim Jarmish and the Wes Andersons, uh, who were willing to uh, let him kind of uh, exhibit be more of his pathos and be a <laughs> like- yeah. You look at Broken Flowers or Rushmore or Broken Flowers is a like a movie I'll never watch again. Like, and I I loved I loved watching it's it, good, but I'll never watch it. It's a good movie, it. but it's so sad. Even like the Life Aquatic, like I love like Life Aquatic is a movie that I didn't like as much that much when I first saw it, and is now I say it's my second favorite Wes Anderson movie after Rushmore. Yeah. Um but it is so like the reason I didn't like it. Is because I didn't get the he- like the jokes were passing over my head for the most part because Bill Murray is so fucking sad in it, like he's so like monotone and depressed. Yeah, and, that's actually like, one of the reasons I don't like it because I think it I think it coddles his depression and fetish fetishizes it in a weird way, um, which you know. Uh, I'm I'm in the minority on that. Life Aquatic is clearly going to be one of Wes Anderson's most uh, enduring movies. Just even uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's pretty polarizing. I think people even among the film bro crowd. Yeah. Like I still see a couple Steve Zissou's at, at, at whenever I do. I walk around like an actual Halloween Halloween in any major city. I, you still see Steve Zissou's. But yeah, it is interesting, and it, it's he kind of then got this new like exciting like I'm gonna work with friends. Still made a lot of bad movies, like a ton of bad movies. Where the Buffalo so- Roman is is border i would say borderline unwatchable uh but that's being generous no i mean um, even the last 10 years like oh no i when mean he started- like, I, I mean like he made he made a few he's made attempts his entire career to to be sort of a dramatic sad yeah. guy and and uh, a lot of them yeah right like you said in the past 10 years have been like wait what the fuck is this yeah, and then he started doing comedies again, like where, but it was all like terrible stuff. Like, what's that Rock of Ages? Yeah, movie? and um, what's the one where it rocked the Casbah? Oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Oh, uh, okay. He, well, I was gonna say he's not in Rock of Ages. That's a Tom Cruise movie, right? And what was that one where like he with the Melissa McCartney one, Saint Vincent or whatever? Yeah, where he's supposed to be like an asshole neighbor who gets redeemed. He's basically it's sort of his Gran Torino. Yeah, but I. All of a sudden, he's making more movies than ever. He's, like, back to doing these comedies that he said he didn't want to ever do. The log line on it is that because of these, like, indie filmmakers that let him be, give him the sort of roles that he always wanted, and also that he got a a, a modicum of acclaim for, right? Like, you know, the big one was Lost in Translation, but... He also would get a claim for Rushmore and Broken Flowers, like that that finally kind of satisfied that thing that he had been chasing for 35 years and allowed him to be like, yeah, I'll just do movies. You know, someone calls me and it's a friend. You know, he famously doesn't have like an agent. He's just a message machine. If he listens to it, that's how he meets some of these new people. And then he just keeps working with those people over and over again that if he likes them. So it is it is interesting. And it. I definitely think it's Groundhog Day from just a uh, from that perspective beyond being a great movie is interesting because it really is that pivot point between uh, Bill Murray truly believing he had found his like award winning existential depression um, crisis, like what it means to be a person movie 
and then feeling like it was turned into a Bill Murray comedy with him kicking and screaming destroys a lifelong friendship and and work collaboration and then kind of puts him on this path to eventually be the, you know, early aughts, late 90s into today Bill Murray. So it, it really is, I think, almost the fulcrum that his career rests on, too. Yeah, yeah. And also his best performance. Like, he should have won. I don't know who won Best Actor in nineteen ninety for the 1993 Academy Awards, but it should have been him. Anyway, um, the last thing I'll say, and we have been, you know, we'll we'll talk about the plot, uh, but we, a lot of stuff to get out of the way first with this movie especially. When we did It's a Wonderful Life a year and a half ago, we talked about, like, with both Peter and myself and with our guest Casey, that it was one of the few movies that, like, as you're watching it, you're re-examining your own life, and in some ways, it like made you like want to be a better person. And we talked about a lot of that when we did Muppets stuff too. Like as a child, watching the Muppets or Sesame Street, uh, and even we've talked a little lately about Mister Rogers. Like those are formidable in like, uh, what kind of like human being should I be? And and providing a level of guidance to like you know, being kind to people and accepting people and stuff like that. And I do think Groundhog Day for me personally is on that list of like movies that constantly make me examine what kind of person I want to be because there is a just a huge catharsis for those last 20 minutes when he's accepted the life is a series of repeatable events, which is also our lives in a lot of ways. Like, I do a lot of the same things every day. And he decides to what kind of person does he want to be in that. And he decides to be the type of person who, instead of takes away from people's lives or does stuff uh, and says stuff only for his own benefit, to not be selfless necessary. Necessarily, I don't think that's what he's doing, but to be the kind of person who helps bring a little uplift to the people that he interacts with while trying to focus on himself and find ways to continue better yourself. And like that was formidable to me uh, when I saw this movie when I was like 10 or 11 for the first time and continues to be since I watched it last week. Like you, you watch those last like all the different things he's going through and the little nice things he does. And it's such, it's so great in the context of this movie because he, he knows that none of this stuff matters, but in those little moments, like on the grand scheme of things for him, it doesn't matter. And I, you could say the same thing about a lot of our interactions with everyday people. Like I'm not a politician impacting the world i'm not like whether i'm nice to a grocery store clerk the only thing i'm doing by being nice or not nice with the cashier or or any any people co-workers whatever else it is is i am deciding whether in that moment to make their day a little better or a little worse and that's the great thing that phil connors learns in this movie it's like Maybe it is, even if these moments ultimately don't mean anything, maybe it's better to be the type of person that makes those those people's days a little bit better. And that has been 
impactful in my life of thinking about it that way. Yeah, I uh, I don't usually think about this movie as a sort of life-affirming one, weirdly enough. Um, I do think about it as someone who uh, grew up with, like, one morality system in Catholicism that was, like, very much about how um, your actions have consequences <laughs> and um, the, that this is a movie For you. For you. For yeah. you. Uh, that uh, this is about this is like the worst case scenario where you just have to keep living in your sin and resting in it for <laughs> forever um, because you're never quite clean. Um, but the fact that he gets to escape that cycle by realizing um, that it, it, that he needs to be a part of this town. And one of my favorite things about the movie is that it starts off, he treats it like a hick town. I mean, he literally calls them hicks. Um, and by the end of the movie, and even I'd say 15, 20 minutes into the movie for the, for the audience, um, you, start to, you start to embrace the locals as like charming locals and you, they stop looking like hicks. And like, I love movies like that that take sort of like a um, small town America or middle America and taking the mannerisms and ticks that makes a lot of a lot of us Midwesterners kind of uh, dorky and, and off putting to people. Um, and then just leading into uh, the core decency that um, that some people have. And uh, how when people are interacting in these sort of webs of uh, webs of commonality in these small towns, it's sometimes hard to tell who the hell anybody is. And then through time, Phil Connors not only learns to give a shit, but learns who everyone in town actually is and how he can fit into this web. Um, so I, I don't know. I found that all of that like really touching in a way that like, went down pretty deep to both the way I was raised and the morality that I later sort of uh, accepted, which is very different than the Catholic sort of morality. Yeah, I mean, to use an overused, like, way to talk about life trope, like, Phil Connors learns that, like, he's, uh, you know, he views himself at the beginning as the protagonist in his own story and everyone else is an antagonist. And he learns about that all these people have just as much, like, dreams, ambition, wants needs pain in their past things they'd like to change as he does like that they are all people <laughs> like it's really telling that at the third act when rita is realizing what a good person that he's become um or the, i guess is um she's because she's not experiencing the loop right um what a good person he actually is like maybe the couple days before were just bad days um <laughs> it's it's telling that the movie switches to rita's perspective for a lot of the third yeah. act and that she walks into the dance hall and sees him playing piano and she gets to witness him seeing all this uh doing all these good deeds that are happening off screen like that's it's exactly what you're saying and it's it's actually a pretty good uh, refutation of Phil's actions earlier that yeah. he he was the only man in his universe for a long time and then when he became the only man in the universe that mattered uh he started uh, he stopped acting like that was true. Yeah. He, he learns that why that is a shitty way to live your life. I think what's also so important is that he never becomes like an unaffected saint, right? Like he these things, like, from a connection to a human being, uh, we we definitely talked about this in It's a Wonderful Life, but I feel like people have a perception that, like, volunteer work and, and being doing good deeds and anything else you want to put should, like, be done out of the goodness of your heart. And if you're not feeling it that day, you're not able to, like, 
add good in the world and how that's like just a a misconception that I think like causes people to not uh, help as much as they should in a lot of different capacities. And this is where even when Phil has become like wonder, like this wonderful person who cares about other people, who wants to better himself, like he still is a human being who can get annoyed and he does the good things regardless. The best example of that is like when he catches that kid in the, you know, in the day that does that that keeps going like he catches the kid that falls out of the tree and what does he do he's not like thank you i say you know of course i saved you don't mention it he yells at him for not thanking him like you know what do you say what do you say you never thank me like he's still <laughs> frustrated at this fucking kid who he keeps saving his life every day and he expresses that frustration but he doesn't do it like this kid didn't thank me well enough I'm going to start letting him fall on the pavement. He still does the good thing, even though from his perspective, all he's getting out of it, like is, is like some pain in his back and some hurt feelings. And that's, that's an important point that this movie makes. You don't have to always feel great or, or be excited about doing the good thing. You should just do the good thing because it's good. Uh, anyways, I think it's enough pontificating. Peter, are you ready to see the groundhog? Uh, yeah. Let's see if that old uh, that old groundhog comes out and sees his shadow. What does that Didn't fucking you just mean? Ask me that. What does that mean? If he sees his shadow, I think it's just which way he comes out of the hole, like oh. which way his eyes are. I don't know. I, I was watching the movie and I was like, "What the fuck does the what does the groundhog seeing its shadow mean?" I've been, I've been, it's been almost thirty years of my life, and I've just been like, "Yeah, well, the guy sees his shadow, and then we're doomed for another three months." Or whatever. well, if, it's just like, does he come out with his back to the sun, or does he come out facing the sun? Right, because okay. if he's facing the sun, he wouldn't see his shadow. If his back's to the sun, he would see a shadow. So, like, if you if you don't want the groundhog to see a shadow, change the direction of the hole. I don't know. Yeah, why don't they just blind the groundhog? You know what? Maybe it's maybe it's dumb. But what I think they should do is let the groundhog just get in a car, drive it right off a fucking cliff. <laughs> One thing that's funny about this movie is that uh, the movie uh, walks back. Uh, that certain characters are hicks, but it never walks back the concept that the actual Groundhog Day ceremony is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but I like that at the end he's able to find meaning in this, like, like his 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 final, like, thing of, like, meaning is about how dumb it is, but maybe in that dumbness we can learn a little bit about humanity. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, we're gonna talk about it. Aaron, do you want to, uh, do you want to see if this Groundhog uh, sees his shadow? Didn't you just ask me that? What are you saying? I said, didn't you just ask me that? Huh. No. Like in this movie where they ask of deja vu. He goes, didn't you just ask me that? Huh. Anyways. This doesn't we'll sound familiar. We'll just pretend Anyways, Aaron, do you want to uh, see yeah. if this groundhog sees its shadow? Didn't you just ask me that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know if I want to get to the sideshow Bob level where we do it. We have to do it 20 times for this to be funny again. Uh, do you want to talk about Groundhog Day? Didn't you just... Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> what a day this has been. What a rare mood I'm in. Why, it's almost like being in love 
There's a smile on my face for the whole human race. Why, it's almost like being in love. All the music of life seems uh, to be... Peter, yeah. you are alternate taglines. Alternate taglines, huh? Witness the fastest jack in Jefferson County. Okay. There's a scene where a woman. Calls no, I know it's just very Bill specific. Murray, the fastest Jack in Jefferson <laughs> County. That's more I assume of a the movie is about movie. Bill Murray getting better at repairing cars, right? I mean, he does get better at certain like ice sculpturing and uh, piano, piano, pi- pi- being a pianist. Um, yeah, he's, he he twinkles the ivories. He we see him reading a lot near the end, so it's possible there's other skills that he developed that we just they don't have screen time for. Uh, someone I remember someone did do the math once of like. At a bare minimum, how many days, like, estimate that he's been in it. And um, something like, I think, like, 50 or 60 years or something like that. Um, I don't know how they do the math, though. Because, like, Harold Ramis said 10. Online, I was reading between 8 and 12. And then, like, it was like how long it took to get good at certain years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so the screenwriter wanted it to be, like, 10,000 years. So that's where I think that comes from. But anyway, I don't think he was in it for 10,000 years. But who knows? Yeah, this um, is a different movie if it's 10,000 years. I feel like 10 years has, like, a power and a charm. But, like, anything more than 20, I feel like, goes into this, like, pathetic zone where there's, like, no way he doesn't go m- fucking insane. Well, he did, though, for a while. We saw... Anyways. Uh, so... So he just pl- drank himself to death and drove off a cliff for, like, 30 years? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you know, he's Every throwing day. toasters into... I don't... That's what's so, like, that's the existential crisis. Like, you wake up, you want the day to be over, and so you throw a toaster in the oven, and then you wake up in the day again. <laughs> like, you throw a toaster in the bathtub. Like, you can't escape. He and does. then, like, and then when he gets that depressing point, he literally is just sitting in the chair at the bed and breakfast watching TV all day for a while there, too, because he knows every, memorizes every single Jeopardy. Like, we definitely are only seeing portions you know what be the most annoying part of this is people since he's there for work people coming to look for him so he probably couldn't really revel in his depression for that long without having to get through the part of the day where he yells at his co-workers because they know where he is yeah uh it's tough so anyways yeah i'm not gonna spend a ton of time on the plot because i would i would almost have to go through every single incident but essentially it's the story of phil connors a weatherman in uh, uh, TV local TV station in Pittsburgh. He has to go, like he always does, to Punxsutawney with Andy McDowell's producer. She's, I think it's the first time he's traveling Rita? with her. Yeah, yeah Rita. She, just, she just started. Uh, and Chris Elliott's... Uh, I forget his character's name, actually. He's just kind Chris of... Elliott. He's, he's he's Chris, Chris Elliott. He's playing a Chris Elliott type. He's playing Chris I like uh, pathetic, sad Chris Elliott type. I realized his genius at playing that. Uh, it's actually a point very early on. At the weather station, so or at the news station, so I'll just mention it now, where he takes a second to think of a joke to come back to what Phil said. There's like a pause, and he gets it, and then he has a smile on his face right before he says it. And then he says it, no one laughs, and he does this kind of like nodding back and forth to himself. And I think that's the Chris Elliott genius. It's understanding that the type of people that make Chris Elliott-level jokes first... <laughs> Take a second to think of it, 
and then are just insanely proud of themselves throughout before they say it, <laughs> while they say it, and after, regardless of the reaction of anyone else around. Uh, but anyways, so they're going to Pakistani. So they go. Phil fucking hates it because, again, he's around a bunch of small town hicks. Uh, stays in bed and breakfast, which he hates, because he's complaining about the other place he has to stay. Uh, so goes through this day where he does all the stuff, doesn't put much effort into it. It's not something he cares about. It's kind of rude to everyone. And then they get stuck there because there's a blizzard and he tries everything to get out of there. And when he wakes up the next day, he doesn't. Stays in the bed and breakfast. When he wakes up the next day, it's Groundhog Day again. And the first day is him. The second day is him like... Maybe this was just a weird dream and I'm having deja vu. So he's not kind of sure how far to push it, but is acting weird to everyone. By the third day, he is kind of like full on like I'm losing my mind because it really is the third day he like goes bowling, drinks beers and drives on the railroad tracks to test it. Yeah, like, uh, day, he, it's he takes really day, quick till day three when he starts breaking the rules, which I think shows you how sad Phil Connors is from the beginning. Like it would Phil take Connors me a doesn't month treat this like before a playground. I'm dr- yeah, he doesn't treat it like a playground immediately. He he it, like. Sorry, he doesn't treat it like a fun playground immediately where he goes robs a banks and shit. He immediately falls into a depression but then he like he's talking to those people about what would you do if you just kept living the same day over and over there's that great line of like you pretty much summed it up for me which i think is actually like most of us for the most part like my days do not change all that much from day to day even if i enjoy all most of the things that i'm doing within those days and uh so but then he goes into kind of like happy mode like i can do whatever i want he wakes up the fourth day not being in a police station and realizes there's no consequences for his actions. So now he can be an asshole. Now he can start taking advantage of people. Now he can rob banks and do rich fun stuff. And uh, he initially um, uh, tricks Nancy uh, into like, I don't think tricks into sex necessarily, but just tricks into that they had some previous like connection, knew each other as a way to introduce himself. He exploits her. Yeah. And then he tries to exploit Rita after that in the same manner. And uh, that's when the movie gets interesting. Yeah. So he tries to pull that trick of like planning this perfect date. So you have about a 20 minute sequence where you're seeing this date that keeps progressing into him getting it perfect. And then he finally gets it perfect. Uh, You know, a charming planned date. And Rita's like, okay, well, yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. Like... And and he realized, and then he goes into this point where he's trying to figure out. He planned a perfect date. She didn't sleep with him. Didn't even really like make out with him. And this has already been perfect. So how do I? This is where he kind of has his existential crisis. He's like, I can't do the thing I want to do. Both a very sad and a funny sequence of and him. pathetic. Like pathetic. He's very, it's, it's very, it's very like, oh fuck you, dude. Yeah, my favorite part, uh, my f- the funniest part of that, and I think one of the funniest parts of the movie, is when he's trying to recreate the magic of the snowball fight when the kids come and attack. <laughs> of, like, all his on-the-spot dialogue that was charming, and now it's just over the top. Because he's just like, I, as far as we know, he he's doing this for six months. He's like, I want to adopt you! Any kids up for adoption? Like, he's just trying so hard to recreate these moments, but is also just wearing desperation on his sleeve. And then he realizes that, like, okay, well, I've had all the fun stuff. The one, th- the other thing I wanted to do, I've been trying for months, as far as we know, to do it. Uh, can't seem to get it right. 
can't ha- can't figure out a way outside of this box. And he decides he's done, so he kidnaps the the groundhog. I was gonna say the gopher, <laughs> very specifically the groundhog. Um, uh, drives off a cliff, and then wakes up in his bed again. So now we have a sequence of him trying to kill himself, and then over and over and over over, and it's a very like depressing. It's not played for laughs. It is a depressing sequence, and then we we kind of go to the next phase of the movie where he finally just tells Rita that you know he's a he's a god, and he just is again extremely sad, just like yeah, I don't know, maybe the real god's just been watching everything over and over too. Because, and while he's doing this, he's like saying everything that's going to happen at the diner, like in five seconds someone's going to drop a tray. Five, four knows everything about everyone in the diner. Um, so you start getting the sense that he's been in this for years at this point, that he can literally time out that. And so Rita, he shares it with Rita. It's the only time in the entire movie that he shares what's going on with anyone else. And they sit and talk, play cards. And he like, for the first time is like real and trying to not take advantage of a situation or do something for himself, but just like needing some support or therapy, or whatever you want to call it, for what he's been going through. And she says at the end of that, like, maybe this is a gift. If you had eternity, maybe there's things that you could spend it on. And he kind of, at that point, we go into the last act of the movie, where we see him doing stuff like starting to take piano lessons, and reading more, and becoming an ice sculpture. And we see him throughout all these doing these kind things that, as I mentioned earlier... Uh, go away at the end of the day. But he just is kind of both bettering himself, uh, being nice to Larry, that's Chris Elliott's name, doing, trying to do good at work for his job, uh, trying to be helpful and thoughtful. And then the last day, as, as Peter mentioned, we see from Rita's perspective a lot of like this person who knows everyone in town, who's trying to make everyone happy. Um, and also sort of unassuming, like even when he, he Rita ends up being like, OK, what is going on with this guy? There's a, um, a, a, a bachelor auction. She bids all her money for Phil. And, you know, instead of the other things that we saw, which was based on, you know, man, trying to manipulate someone into a into a tryst. It's just him kind of doing some nice things and talking. And then finally that morning she stays, which is the second time she stayed. So even that is not necessarily the trigger. <laughs> they uh, wake up. It's not Groundhog Day um, anymore. <laughs> he says he's going to live in Punxsutawney. And, and they uh, they walk out to a very uh, poppy 19, like, 40s or 50s song. Um, oh, and real quickly, uh, when they wake up in the morning, uh, they're wearing clothes. They're wearing the clothes from the night before. Well, they say, they say when he kisses her, he goes, what was, where was this last night? You just went to sleep. So... Which is um, which is based on a very common uh, it's Bill Murray's wedding story, where apparently his wife fell asleep early in the wedding night, and he like read poetry to her until he also fell asleep, or read something to her, read stories to her or something while he also fell asleep. And um, the end of the movie does a really good fake out to where he they wake up to um, the same song they've been hearing every morning, uh, which is "I Got You, Babe." And then the DJs, instead of going Rise and Shine Campers, it's Groundhog's Day, go, I just really like that song, which is <laughs> a very, very funny. 
And uh, uh, and uh, Rita reaches over and says, "Too early!" And her arm comes into the frame and and slaps off the alarm, which is it speaks to the pencil scene, and that speak to the beautiful simplicity that the movie, the poetic simplicity that the movie often speaks in. Because uh, the movie does not, it does not uh, gild the lily very often. And there's a, there's actually a sequence, uh, not to get too into it really quickly, but there's a sequence in, uh, that they cut from the movie. I don't even, I, I've never seen it. I assume it's like a deleted scene in the Blu-ray or something, but they spent a ton of money on the scene where Bill Murray, uh, as he's going crazy, thrashes his hotel room with a chainsaw, gives himself a mohawk, shaves his head. They had to do the super expensive hair piece because obviously Bill Murray didn't really shave his head because this is a movie that's just uh, reshoots on reshoots on reshoots um, to make sure everything matches. They And then eventually he wakes up the next day and his room is, exa- is exactly the same as it was at the beginning of the day. And they replaced that. They shot it. They, they It looked great. Harold Rambis was in the editing booth with their editor and said, no cut it got rid of this super expensive take and replaced it with the pencil scene where bill murray just snaps a pencil puts it on his nightstand and the morning he wakes up finds the pencil hole again yeah which is perfect because that's all it's a gag that costs eight cents (laughs) yeah because a pencil can't repair itself so it's not a trick it's not a put on like it lets you know there's something more cosmic Uh, that that is that is occurring to him um i do want to get into we've we've talked so much about this movie already it's we we've been doing this more as we get really excited about stuff that we we end up not uh, putting a lot of stuff after the plot recap and that's fine because there's there was so much to discuss that has to do with this movie um but as long as we're talking harold ramus Harold Ramis is a really great director of comedy. He also actually delivers my the the line that still makes me laugh the most in this movie. I'm sure we'll talk about other lines that we really like because it's Bill Murray. He does have a lot of good <laughs> quotable lines that I, as I watch, I always remember. Oh yeah, that I use that in my everyday life. That's where I got that from. But the uh, the part where uh, Harold Ramis asks, "Why doesn't he leave?" and Bill Murray, when because Harold Ramis also plays the neurologist who's doing CAT scans on him, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Murray says, "I told you I can't leave because of the blizzard." And Harold Ramis hit that delivery of, "Oh yes, the blizzard, so <laughs> good, it's so good." And so. Uh, yeah, it actually weirdly enough reminds me of the scene in Elf with a. Uh... Yeah, it does. <laughs> with uh, with John, John Favreau, Favreau because I like the idea of casting yourself as a uh, as a doctor in your movie, but a doctor that seems very fed up with the plot of the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like somebody who's just like ah, the whole concept of this thing is just not really my deal. He's your uh, kid. Speaking to the the groundhog scene as well as the scene that was cut uh, for. Uh, the the Mohawk chainsaw scene uh, that was cut from the movie. Uh, this movie actually, I remember in my memory. I, I've I've seen this movie since I was a kid. Don't really have a memory of first watching it, similar to any any Bill Murray movie from before 1998. Um, don't really have a memory of watching it for the first time. Just it's 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 in the brain. Uh, it's, I also don't remember when I learned what a square was. Um, or a triangle. Um, I don't remember when I learned uh, what my sister was. Uh, yeah, let's that. talk more about things you didn't learn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's stuff that's just imbued. It's, it's just um, built into your into your psyche uh, way before uh, conscious memory, right? So um, 
I don't remember any of that, but I remember the movie being far more about Bill Murray getting into antics. Yeah. Um, and there's really not that many scenes. He steals the, he steals from the, he does a bank robbery. Um, he steals the groundhog and goes on a chase. He gets, he does drunk driving. Oh yeah. Don't drive on the railroad tracks. <laughs> the, he dresses like, uh, nameless from a uh, good man, the ugly. Uh, and keeps, see, sees the same movie over and over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's not really, like, it, it's not wall-to-wall him being, like, no consequences spring break. Because Harold Ramis, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, and the screenwriter all took uh, a moment to... And the screenwriter, Danny Rubin, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and Danny Rubin all took specific efforts to make sure that this movie wasn't just a sla- just pure slapstick Bill Murray comedy, and yet it's full of like really great uh, Bill Murray being silly moments, um, and like fuck, him and Stephen Tobolowsky together <laughs> are so good that they made me laugh at a gay panic joke, like. In the year of our Lord, 2020, I laughed at a gay panic joke because Stephen Tobolowsky and Bill Murray are so funny. Can we talk about really quickly the Stephen Tobolowsky? So Stephen Tobolowsky has a great show called Tobolowsky, or he had a great show called Tobolowsky Files, and he did like 70 episodes, and it's sort of this like poetry, it's a poetry, poetic version of his own history. It's a little bit pretentious. It's really funny. Um, and it's a lot of great stories. I really recommend his episode on Groundhog Day. And there's this great episode where he was talking about shooting the Glimmer Man because he's the villain in that and talking about him talking Steven Seagal through a Buddhist perspective into uh, shooting the ending of the movie because Steven Seagal refused to shoot it. Like Steven Tobolowsky is amazing. And his episode on this was super revealing to how what the set was like. Um, and, uh, all the decisions that Harold Ramis was making to, like, back it away from the slapstick. And, uh, they shot this movie in Woodstock, Illinois, which is, uh, I don't know, 40 minutes from where I grew up. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a movie that looks like an Illinois movie when you actually (laughs) get to spot it. Um, it's sort of at the Illinois-Wisconsin, uh, border. And apparently when they were shooting this movie, they had to, they kept everyone on set all the time. Brought people back for reshoots even after they thought they were done with them. And they would shoot scenes in multiple types of weather. The same scene in multiple types of weather. So that uh, Harold Ramis has more ways to edit around it. So he can make it so that the weather would be consistent in the same scene every single time. And then uh, the next day when they were shooting the other stuff... um, the, uh, you know, the reveal that he broke the cycle, that he yeah. could have a contrasting type of weather. So it was very clear that as soon as he breaks the cycle, the weather is actually communicating that, even though Bill Murray has no idea and uh, Andy McDowell has no idea because she doesn't know about the cycle. <laughs> um, it's just that the, the uh, Harold Ramis shot certain scenes in so many different types of weather that he was able to cut it together. So the moment that um andy mcdowell and him there's a moment uh he, where andy he, McDowell he rips open the curtains it's, it's like, no oh, it's, it's a different before, day it's before then it's it's what he's doing the ice sculpture and andy mcdowell sees him doing the ice sculpture the weather starts acting differently than it did in all because oh, he, he starts snowing because he broke the t- he broke yeah. the timeline at that point you know um and he doesn't know he broke the timeline but they edit it in such a way where like oh that didn't happen at 
three o'clock in all the other versions, but you can subtly tell that something is different. Yeah. That's crazy, um, right? That's fucking insane. Is. And they shot all these scenes, like almost all the scenes either on a soundstage uh, in Cary, Illinois, or uh, on the street in Woodstock, Illinois, where the weather's super unpredictable in the winter. Yeah, it is. It is so seamless. Like it never feels like, and I can't imagine what like a, you know, like a PA nightmare was. Oh my because god! It's, it, it, must it doesn't. It doesn't work too. if it looks different. Like if the people in the background don't move the same way. Like you have to show the same stuff over and over. And if there was too many continuity errors, it breaks the cycle. So even though I think this is surprisingly an easy template to make a compelling story out of. I imagine that the work that you have to do to make sure it feels right is is tough. And that's why um, – I don't know if this is why. Uh, probably m- multiple reasons why they do this. But I, it's it's why I think they like go, okay, we're going to show and, – and this movie does this really well and we're going to see this throughout uh, this month where this movie is going to show the same thing over and over again for a few times. And then it's going to like expand and blow it up and show – different corners of the town and the what different people are doing at, at certain times like it needs to establish the rhythm and then it needs to break the rhythm and go outside of the initial like construct of the point a to point b of how his day went once he starts getting outside of that predetermined line that he had done his first day um, um so there's one scene though that breaks the editing um, according to Stephen Tobolowsky and some people that uh, are behind the scenes, um, there's one scene that breaks the editing. Can you guess what it is? Uh, I don't know. No, it's the it's the scene where he's. <laughs> My answer's he, no. Final answer. The, the answer is uh, when he steals the groundhog. It technically breaks the rules of what they established in the rest of the movie. Um, but the groundhog was such an asshole to work with that they only could shoot that scene once. And Bill Murray was so funny in the scene, and the groundhog did what it was supposed to do in the scene that they were like, "Yeah, fuck, fuck this. We're using this take." <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, for the, the groundhog weather? took a fucking chunk out of Bill Murray's hand, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Well, I mean, groundhogs not typically uh, giving actors. They're always, you know, how like Jared Leto was on the set of uh, Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. uh, where he's just kind of in character as as a as the clown prince of crime. Well, groundhogs are always in character as uh, uh, vicious rodents. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though that like when people try and and i know this movie is like as it is doing this is like a joke and in groundhog day celebrations there's a dude with thick ass gloves who essentially pulls this thing out by the scruff holds it up for a few minutes and then puts it back in its hole because they're yeah that dude is brian doyle murray (laughs) um brian doyle murray literally has a voice for doing cartoons like he, if he had like in 1980 just switched to only doing cartoons, I bet you he would be a billionaire by now. I mean, I think he did a lot of cartoons. <laughs> he did, but that voice, like, yeah, it's, it's that's a good voice. He could do whatever the fuck he wanted with that voice. Uh, I mean, he was on SpongeBob and probably made like a fat stack. Of, he is on SpongeBob. He could have made a fat stack of I'm cash sure. off of that. And I'm sure we don't have to worry about Brian Doyle Murray. <laughs> yeah, he's he's fine. Um, he was in the short-lived. Uh, television series the sweet spot peter with bill murray and two other murray brothers that we don't know their names off the top of our, uh of our joel and sure. ethan <laughs> i might be thinking of a cohen i think those are both cohen's peter joel is joel is for sure <laughs> joel is for sure a uh a, a murray because he's in uh god bless america well i don't know if he's in the sweet spot though 
Do you know what the sweet spot is? It's the golf show, right? The golf show, the like seven episodes. Couldn't Bill watch it. Murray and the brother. I I did. It was not what I expected. In 1997, just excited about Bill Murray. Oh, they are just playing golf. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're just playing a golf, shooting the shit. This is also like when Comedy Central was like, do you have a skit comedy troupe? You can have 30 episodes. Like Comedy Central was throwing money at anybody. Well, it was more fun then than it is now where it's like, how would you feel about watching South Park only? Um, <laughs> I feel like there was a hot spot where Nathan for you and Broad City got greenlit. Yeah, there was, was there like, was like a Detroiters. But I, I couldn't tell you. I mean. I don't have cable anymore, so I don't oh. know what's on that channel. You struck me Peter. as someone who would never actually drop cable. I did a year and a half ago. I, I, I have I re-signed up. I have re-signed up for a month with like a YouTube TV or whatever because I wanted to watch the Jeopardy's uh, Greatest of All Time thing. Oh, God. Um, and I was like, well, I might as well keep it for the Oscars. Yeah. Have I ever told you that game shows, like, not only do they not work for me, they, like, if I'm ever somewhere and there's a TV playing and there's just game shows playing, for some reason, it's, like, a depression trigger for me. Really? You don't like, like Jeopardy? I, for, like, if I'm somewhere Jeopardy's and, like... so good. I can watch if, Jeopardy over and over. And if over. I'm somewhere, like, a car dealership and I'm waiting for, like, them to, you know, check if my warranty is still active to rotate my tires for free or whatever the fuck, or, like, I'm getting my oil changed or, I don't know, I'm at a DMV, um... You know, you just have, like, downtime, and they're just playing, like, Price is Right, or Wheel of Fortune, or Family Feud, or Jeopardy. Um, Whenever I'm in one of those weird situations where all there is to watch is a game show, I get, like, a weird sense of melancholy. Huh. It's gotta be something about, like, when you were a kid and sick and watched game shows all day. Yeah. I think it's just... Let's explore that for the next half hour. It's literally... I think it's as close as I've ever been to feeling like psychic vampires are real. And psychic vampires... Jim Carrey is one of... Jim Carrey. Drew Carey is a psychic vampire. Sure. Okay, there's a lot to... psychic vampire. There's a lot to unpack here, Peter. (laughs) We don't have have time for all of it. Bob Barker. But, But I am surprised you don't like Jeopardy. Jeopardy's good. Um, it's not that I dislike it. I think it's like a worse game show. It's just the concept of game shows makes me make. But me it's just like trivia stuff. You just you like trivia. Do you, do you play Trivial Pursuit? Sometimes. I like With trivia. my friends. I don't consider Alex Trebek a friend. Oh, wow. That's really harsh to say, especially when we, he doesn't have much time left. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to look at the back of this episode. I think and feel he's pretty got bad. friends. Mm. I think at, at this at this time of need, he can use all the friends he can get, Peter. I can guarantee you this is, like, my most uh, annoying outsider opinion, and I'm ashamed of it, for sure. Oh, no, it's not your most annoying. <laughs> is it that Die Hard 3 is secretly the best Die Hard? Is that it? I didn't even know that one, but yeah, that's a fucking annoying opinion. I would oh, yeah. say that Die Hard 3 is the worst of the first four Die that's Hards. An, that's fucking crazy. Like, I like Die Hard 3, but I think it goes 1, Live Free or Die Hard, the R-rated cut, Die Hard 2, Die Hard 3. No, it's definitely 1, 3, sorry, 3, 1, interchangeable, and then 4 is better than 2. Yeah, but 2 is good. I like, I think 2 gets a bad rap. Yeah. So there's the moment in 2 where uh, you realize that all the military guys are in on the, in on the gag or whatever, in on the terrorists. And they all start laughing in the back of the APC or whatever. That mm-hmm. scene is like one of the best, the best script writing surprises I've ever seen in a movie. It's yeah. so good. And really good direction from Rennie Harlan. Like it's uh, Die Hard 2 is good. Uh, anyways, 
So uh, if I, I compared this a little bit like, just for me, It's a Wonderful Life is a better movie. It gives me a lot of the same feels that It's a Wonderful Life does. So, of course, if it's like It's a Wonderful Life, it needs a part that makes me cry. And nothing makes me cry. Like, nothing makes me cry. Like, It's a Wonderful Life. So, we're comparing, like, me getting a little choked up at the same part every time to me like, I can't see people right now in It's a Wonderful Life. But, Peter, can you guess the part that gets me every single time in this movie? Uh, the part, uh, it's, is it the dead, dead, uh, homeless man? Oh, no, I think that's actually the, I think they should have cut that part out. I think it's really important to the point of the movie. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I think it should have been earlier. It happens too late. Oh, anyway. Um, the part that makes you cry the most, um, in the town hall scene when he, uh, you find out that he saved Michael Shannon's marriage. (laughs) No. Yeah, that was the part I was most invested in. You were like, Michael Shannon gets to be here. They're going to WrestleMania! <laughs> um, no, the uh, part that gets me is the speech um, in the day that doesn't, one of the days that doesn't matter. When, oh, oh uh, is it, is it, um, is it, it's going to be a cold, it's going to be gray, no. it's going to be the last, the, the last, you, rest, the last day of the rest of your life? What is he No, saying? like, that's, we, we already talked about neither of us cry at sad things, Peter. Yeah, we don't, we don't. So... No, it's the it's the after Andy McDowell goes, well, what about me? Do you know everything about me? And he does that list like you like the beach, but not the oceans. You like that. Uh, that part is very good. Yeah. Um, and and then find... he ends it with and he ends it with that land. Like, and when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. <laughs> like, yeah. it's good. It's a good. It's a good speech. There's, yeah, this is this is definitely this movie is. Uh, let's talk about it as a rom-com. Um, because this is definitely a movie that's a rom-com, but it comes at it from an angle that I've literally never seen before and I didn't know was possible in one of these movies. The, the, well, for one, it does take one, it does use one, um, cash-in token that every rom-com gets, which is that anything that's creepy in real life, uh, is actually sweet. Um, and that's the fact that he spent, uh, okay, so there's two, there's two moments when he, he's pursuing her, basically. One, when he's pursuing her exploitatively, and he's just trying to trick her into sex. There's not, it's, he's confusing lust for love, uh, whatever you want to interpret that as. He's just, he's just horned up by her. Or, he's actually in love with her, but he only knows how to interpret romance through sex. Yeah, he does, like, he does say that later on when she's sleeping, and he's like, I've realized I've been in love with you since I first met you, I just didn't understand what love meant remember yeah. that like when yeah yeah that's and more like, what i'm yeah that's that's more what i'm on i'm on board with and he 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 thinks for and, and he literally needs to and I, this is a very uh it's a very uh, uh probably rising th- risable thing to say but i do consider this a movie that has feminist themes and one of them is that he treats women as uh, a game uh like a pickup artist Mm-hmm. And then that fails him, exploiting women and treating them like uh, games to be won, like a puzzle to be solved. And then at the end of the puzzle, you put it all to all the pieces together and then you have something to have sex with. Uh, that gets him nowhere and just yeah. leads him deeper. And no dark. matter how many times, it's not like there's a right combination. Like, I have that as a note, too. Like, yes. this movie wouldn't work if... So, I think Bill Murray or Phil mistakes andy mcdowell's sweetness for gullibility and Mm -hmm. she's not that she's extremely smart she's very self-possessed like she is not a 
like a dummy. And I think I think there's a lot of different versions of this movie, especially in the 80s and 90s, that would have made her um, more of less of an actual character uh, and more of a prize to be won. Like you said, that middle part of the movie where he's trying to exploit her is because he views her as a prize. And, like, it never gets close to working. And that's the, it, like, it, not only does it never get close to working, no matter how many different times he tries it, like, the whole point is, is that he has to constantly, he, she is so onto him immediately that he constantly has to, like, every little conversation moment has to start over again. Because she understands that he is full of shit very easily. And he constantly fucks up, like, the fact that, like, yeah, I don't have the best intentions. And she is not some gullible person who is, like, snowed by him. And, yeah, I, I do think that's extremely, extremely important. Yeah, and, and the the movie has this nadir point that I sort of referenced where Phil um, gets creepiest and his least likable when he's kind of pushing himself on Andy and he's trying to just... Yeah. He's pushing himself on Rita, I should say, the character, um, and he's trying to get get in with her, and he's being a creep, and uh, it actually reminds me a lot of, like, a sort of joke meme thing that's on Twitter that uh, among, like, a lot of... Um, Although a lot of left-leaning folks on Twitter, socially left-leaning folks that I always I, I find funny most of the time, which is like um, when men are acting insane or leaning into men's rights activism or pickup artist bullshit, uh, or they're leaning into like men's sense of entitlement over women women's bodies. There's a sort of joke that usually works on me, um, which is uh, go to therapy, um, and that's what that is a theme that I was thinking about when I was watching this movie because Rita is perfect, um, perfect as she is. And I don't mean perfect in the sense that she's a dream girl or whatever. I mean the sense of perfect that there's nothing about her you would change. There's nothing about her that needs to change. She is she is a, a developed person um, who has a sense of balance. And uh, she's she even allows, even after Phil was an asshole to her the previous day and the whole ride up and yada yada, she allows him to... A benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. Like she's kind of, she's kind of perfectly developed. And usually in rom-coms what happens, especially like a rom-com where they pair two people that we love, like a Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, for example, they both need to grow to the point that they can actually connect. One of them needs to stop being crazy in one way, and one needs to stop being crazy in another way. In this movie, what's interesting as a rom-com is she's perfectly fine, and she's incapable of growth within this movie because... I'm not saying incapable. Incapable of massive growth because she is not aware of the cycle. She can't use the... Well, she's she she's having a day. I mean, how much massive growth would you yes. generally uh, relatively pleasant, nice person can yes. you have in a day? You understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah, she's exactly. already She's already there. He needs to work to get there. And he he needs to, so so to speak, go to therapy. Uh, he needs Which to she work tells himself... Him. Which she tells him that one of the breaking points is like, you need therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he... Yeah. And he like he so to speak, like works on himself. Yeah. Um. So and not just in pursuit of, and not just in pursuit of winning her over, right? Like the movie that, seems to drift yeah. away from Rita for a little bit as he starts to do work on his own self reflection, and he seems to the, it focuses more on the town and him as a member of the community, and, and, and on then himself, he yeah. comes back to her as a developed person. Well, I would actually, I, I would actually say. That's different, though, because he does, like, I think that's the other important part of this movie. 
He doesn't come back to her. She comes to him. He has accepted that Rita is this person who he's in love with that is better than him in every way. <laughs> um, and doesn't deserve some creep who has the advantage of Time Lord status doing anything. So he's pleasant to her. He's nice in the same way he treats everyone nice. So he's not doing all these things to him. Like, if this movie was he's doing all this for Rita, it would be bad. But he's not. And when Rita, on that day of that, you know, the the dance or whatever else, bids on Phil, it's, it's her going, oh, this is actually an interesting person that I might have feelings for. And like I said, he just... He's not, like, trying to be over, oh, she's interested, I'm going to be overly romantic. He just, you know, he makes her an ice sculpture. They just sleep on the, you know, they stay up and talk until they fall asleep. Like, it's not till the next morning that he even initiates any sort of, like, physical contact, which at that point she, you know, eyes wide open reciprocates. So, uh, yeah, I think all that stuff is critically important. Yeah, um, and it does. You you get what I'm saying, right? I like this movie is 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 a uh, has a has a feminist theme that I did not expect on this watch at all. Yeah, which I and don't I think was... I don't think Ghostbusters has that. I don't think I definitely don't think Stripes has that. Like I think that's that's something that's unique <laughs> to this era. Uh, you don't think Bill you don't Murray think Stripes has a feminist theme? <laughs> I think Stripes is mostly about uh, getting laid. Um, I think it's it's an entire movie about getting laid. It's I think it's an entire like era of comedy. This was this was Bill Murray making like a Porky's or an ant or like a che- a sort of cheap dirty comedy. It's just that it's fucking Bill Murray, so it's funnier than a Porky's. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, any other quick scenes or moments? I know we're yeah. running short on time. We have to talk about the. We have to talk about Pops, the the death of the homeless oh, guy, yeah. because I think he is a crucial part of the story. So, and it's a crucial part of the balance act that this movie does that keeps it from uh, relevant. I think to how life actually is. Um, and so there's a homeless guy that Bill Murray like d- does what everyone does basically like outright ignores or pretends like he's going to give money and he's like oh man but he's been there since the first day yeah he's always bill's first pass basically (laughs) yeah next time pops like as he's coming around the corner before he goes to see the groundhog he's always been there yeah and he he uh one in one of the runs pops dies so bill works again and again and again to try and save his life and no matter what he does pops dies and what that that teaches as a lesson that b- helps balance out the movie. And because uh, the third, let's compare this to Scrooge really quickly. Scrooge, it's okay that the third act is nothing but ecstatic joy. And he, so to speak, wins the girl. Um, and everyone more or less decides that they love him again. Like they're like that. Everybody accepts his Scrooge arc in eight seconds. It's, it's okay for me because it's, it's the last 10 minutes of the movie, 15 minutes of the movie where he's in, in that mode and around everybody. Right. Um, his, the hap the happy part of Scrooge movies is always short as hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because Scrooge is a, not a very good movie that I enjoy quite a bit. <laughs> I think Scrooge is a very good movie that, uh, that has, uh, serious faults that are overwhelmed yeah. <laughs> by the <laughs> sheer peaks. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Maybe, maybe I, I would say it similarly. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> It's the same thing. The very good versus very, very great or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever dichotomy is bullshit. Um, 
<laughs> we, we're, we're saying the same thing. Um, but the movie has faults, but the, it only has to sustain that joyous happiness for 10 or 15 minutes, right? And I yeah. think you and I are both on the record for really liking the sort of raw, uncomfortable joy, euphoric, almost cocaine joy that Bill Murray has at the end. Yeah, and uh, all... Like, that's, we talked about how that's my favorite part of any Christmas Carol adaptation. I love when they're like, fuck yeah, life is actually good. I'm going to be nice from now on. Yeah, because you've spent 80, 90 minutes earning it, right? Um, or in The Muppet Christmas Carol, the best Christmas Carol, only like 60. Um, but uh, Well, I also talked about the one thing about Scrooge that I don't like is that I don't believe for a second that if, if his long lost love had been like, yeah, I, I mean, great. I'm glad you've changed, but like, I'm. I'm out. He would have kept any of his revelations. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the one thing that's unique to that Scrooge adaptation. I think is that he, because like he gets all his other long yeah all his other long last loves are dead in yeah. other adaptations. So he has to like do it without a reward. And I don't I don't believe if you take the reward out of Scrooge, he does any of that shit. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment, but it doesn't really hold up well as like uh, real to life or uh, whatever. But it's it's a cartoon Christmas movie. Who gives a shit? Anyway, so um, getting to this movie, so much of the movie is about him emerging into his role as someone who's part of this community and who cares about people and is suddenly that fake sort of vacuous way that he's charming to people suddenly becomes his way of expressing uh, genuine interest in their lives and, and who they are and he starts to be someone who's like I'm going to make this this day, this big, dumb, fucking stupid celebration I'm going to make this as beautiful as I can I can make it and um, the the death of pops is a balancing act to that third act because too much of the third act is about him just deciding to become a good person which you know if this movie really is like 10 years uh chronologically um mm -hmm. that's probably makes sense right like that he eventually like he did work through his shit um pops's death works because it's him learning that he has limitations and that while he can go out and make the world a better place and he can he can bring joy into the world he can't be everywhere at once and it's sort of the movie saying no you don't need to be this like you said earlier aaron this sort of saintly figure that is al always where they need to be and yep. stops any bad thing from happening you can't stop bad things from happening it's just that the stuff that is within your control you exhibit empathy you exhibit kindness you exhibit patience you become the person that uh you should be i think that's a really good spot to to move into some final thoughts although peter i know i know we had a hard stop so i don't think we can actually do final thoughts tonight yeah. um but what we'll do so next week uh, we'll we'll uh, have a little time. We'll record some final thoughts. We'll put it out as his own special epi. We'll you so you'll hear that next week, and then you'll also hear next week's episode, which is the Tom Cruise vehicle Edge of Tomorrow. So look for Groundhog Day, uh, part two, uh, as well as uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Cruise. Oh, I watched the movie I'll Edge Tomorrow. Oh yeah, which no, I watch that all the time. But you have you have to watch the other one too. Yeah, which is just about a guy. He's like, I, I came really early tomorrow. I'll edge tomorrow. Yeah, that's the ultimate edging when you don't even get started on the edging. <laughs> <laughs> you just went right over the edge. Yeah, you you're just talking about edging is like 
uh, maximum edging. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Got like, it. I'll eventually, like, procrastinating edging, I think, is a new type of porn that we just invented. Shit, what is what is this Blu-ray I have? Come, die, repeat? Uh, yeah, that now All you, you take it as come. Uh, yeah. Edge of come what? <laughs> come of tomorrow? <laughs> I'm just going right. to match your level of cleverness. But anyways, <laughs> good night. We will see you next week for more Groundhog Day and Edge of Tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow. There'll be sun Just thinking about Tomorrow Clears away the cobwebs And the sorrow Till there's none When I'm stuck with a day That's gray and lonely I just stick on my chin Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>